Open your Bibles tonight to 1 Corinthians, again, chapter number 13. 1 Corinthians, chapter number 13. It would have been real easy for me to just put together in a group all of uh, these things that we've been looking at the last few weeks. And as I mentioned before, beginning in verse number 3 and then in verse number, well, actually verse number 4 and 5, it's like a picture album where we're looking at the characteristics of love. And uh, so we see all of these different pictures. We've already considered four uh, snapshots of love. And so, like I said, it'd be easy to put all of them together and make each one of them a point. But I don't know. Sometimes I think it helps if we just uh, slow down a little bit. And I'm not going to keep you very long tonight uh, intentionally. And uh, I, that way we can just, you know, focus in on what we're uh, thinking about. Uh, that's the difference between a rifle and a shotgun. You shoot a shotgun and it just splatters everywhere. But a rifle zeroes in right on a specific target. And so we're going to do that tonight. We've already talked about uh, uh, love's patience and its practice, its purity, its peacefulness. But tonight uh, in verse number four, and this ends this verse, it tells us here that love is not puffed up. That's the pufflessness of love. And, you know, at first thought when we look at that, it seems like that would be synonymous with the with the last phrase, and although they're closely related, they are different. In the former phrase, Paul was speaking about uh, about bragging, boasting, and love vaunteth not itself. Uh, but here in this latter phrase, it speaks about conceit. And the first, of course, springs from the second, the conceited person just you know naturally views himself as being better than others and so he he's got to brag about it and he does uh, and so that's what he's talking about here love is not puffed up that comes from a greek word that means to inflate or to blow up or to swell up and uh, the point is that love's not arrogant conceited uh, it's not proud. One writer said, Behind boastful bragging, there lies conceit, an overestimation of one's own importance, abilities, or achievements. It's probably a lot more common than what we would like to admit. Uh, and, you know, it's usually easier for us to see it in others than in ourselves. You know, we spot that arrogant attitude in someone else and just about all of us despise that but uh, so many times in our own life that we uh, we might tend to think more of ourselves than we ought to William Barclay who wrote a lot of commentaries he was not a real great bible scholar as far as as far as being correct in his doctrine but he was a, a brilliant historian 
And uh, he wrote in regards to Napoleon, he said that Napoleon always advocated the sanctity of the home and the obligation of public worship for others. Of himself, he said, and, and this is a quote from Napoleon, I am not a man like other men. The laws of morality do not apply to me. Wow. You know, we look at that and uh, we think about how arrogant Napoleon was, but the fact of the matter is that, you, listen, that's a picture of pride that we often see in a lot of people. That he says, you know, I'm not like everybody else. The laws of morality, they don't apply to me, you know. And that might be well and good for you, but uh, but, you know, not for me. Well, let's go back to the context, and it's always important that we stick with that as we look at this. And remember to whom Paul was writing, he's, of course, addressing the church at Corinth, and it had a serious problem regarding this matter of pride. Turn back to chapter number 4, and let me just read a few verses so that uh, that you'll see what I'm talking about. And here we see him making mention of it in verse number 6 of chapter 4. And these things, brethren, I, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, that ye might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, and no one of you be puffed up for one against another. Now look at verse number 18. Now some are puffed up. So he knows that he's dealing with an existing problem there in that church. Chapter 5 and verse 2, he says, And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you now i'm not going into detail about what he was talking about there but but the church actually was boasting and bragging about the fact that they had not exercised church discipline uh, against a fellow and you know they, uh, they they wanted everybody to think boy we are so loving we are so sweet we are so kind you know that uh, yeah we did we did you know we wouldn't think about excommunicating him. So they're bragging about something that they should have been condemning. Now look in chapter number 8 and verse number 1. And again, he speaks to this subject. He says, Now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that, uh, that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. Now, think about that a little while. Knowledge puffeth up. Well, it certainly shouldn't, but it does. By that, you know, it, uh, it's, it's simply implying that a lot of times the more people know, the more highly they think of themselves because they begin to feel superior to everyone else. And I pastored in Missouri. It was there in Springfield, you know, in the Baptist Bible College there. We had several... Bible college students that uh, that attended our church from time to time. They didn't tend to stick around our place as long as they did some places. Uh, but anyway, we, we had several of them. And, and you know, if, if it hadn't been so serious, it'd be funny to watch some of them because the amazing thing was as they began to learn and as they acquired knowledge and especially uh, 
especially if they were taking Greek, you know, learning Greek and Hebrew, and boy, all of a sudden, you know, they think they have arrived at the top rung of the ladder of knowledge, that they know more than anybody else. And boy, they, you know, they want to argue about everything under the sun. And uh, knowledge puffeth up. It tends to make us feel like we know more than anybody else. We you know, we, we think about our situation in America today and and uh, in the political realm. This same thing happens. There are those, you know, that have graduated from Harvard and Yale and different places like that. And uh, there are a lot of people in politics that feel like that they are the elitist. You don't make any mistake about it. There are people that would like to be president that feel like that you and I are just too dumb to know how we ought to live. And what we need is their input and their guidance that they've got to take us by the hand because, you know, we're poor people, you know, we don't know enough to... Uh, don't have the sense God gave a goose, and so we need them. And that's the way they think. They really truly believe that whether they say that or not. And uh, so that's that elitist mentality. Knowledge puffeth up, but notice charity edifieth. And that word edify means to build up. Uh, if we really love somebody else rather than trying to tear them down and inflate ourselves to appear to be better than what we actually are, our main interest becomes in trying to build them up and to strengthen and to help them. So uh, this is just a, a picture of what's going on there in the church that Paul is writing to. And, uh, you know, arrogance is ugly anywhere you see it. Uh, it doesn't make any difference where it's at. Uh, it, it can be uh, it, it can be in sports even and you know, we, we all know those kind of people that have that real arrogant attitude, you know. Boy, I'm the Muhammad Ali, you know. I'm, you know, I, I'm, the, I'm the greatest and, uh, just, you know, maybe you want to punch him in the face or something because he had that attitude. You find people like that in baseball, football, everything. They think they are better than than anyone else. But let me tell you. Arrogance is never more ugly than when you find it in a church uh, among God's people. And this is what Paul is dealing with here in, in, in this church. And, uh, and it's a lot more prevalent, I'm afraid, than what we'd like to admit. You know, it's real easy to uh, talk about, well, I, you know, I'm just, a, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. But then turn around and act like we're God. And, and, and that happens. I'll never forget uh, being in a fellowship meeting somewhere. Well, it's actually a conference, and and uh, this. I want to be real careful how I word this because I, I don't want to embarrass someone if they happen to get the message, but they really need to be embarrassed. But we're walking across the parking lot, and this this missionary uh, inquires of me if I'd ever tried fasting. I don't know what brought the subject up or anything. And, 
I mean, I could just look at him and tell I knew what was coming because his lower lip was dragging the ground. He's walking all slumped over and he wasn't smiling. And I, I, I just knew, I mean, you could tell this. It looks like, you know, he maybe he hadn't eaten in a few days or something. And, uh, and I said, well, yeah, I, I do. I said, uh, there's been times that I've deprived myself momentarily because, of, you know, the, some stress that I'm under or whatever else. But, uh, you know, it's not something I'd go, go around, you know, talking about or anything. Boy, he began to wax eloquent about all of the great benefits of, uh, fasting and so forth. And you, you know that there's nothing worse than having an arrogant attitude in trying to put your Christianity on display before others. And we, we can do that in regards to the matter of prayer or whatever it is and, and try to belittle others. You know, sometimes I, I, um, I, I used to, I, I read a lot about the, the preachers of old. I'm, I'm talking about, you know, especially back 200, 150 years ago and the famous missionaries and pastors like Spurgeon and different ones. And and some of the things I read is remarkable. I, some of them say, you know, I wouldn't think about starting a day without spending three or four hours in prayer or something like that. And boy, I can read that and all of a sudden I feel like, wow, I must be the biggest failure that's, that there's ever been because I don't start every day spending no three or four hours in prayer. But you, listen, we live in a different world than what they lived in back then. Besides that, they might not mean that they are on their knees actually praying. A lot of times when they refer to that, they're talking about getting in a quiet place alone with the Word of God and reading God's Word, and uh, spending time in prayer. Now, obviously, when we talk about the subject of pride, it's something we can talk about for hours. Uh, and and uh, we, could, we could have a long series just on the subject of pride. Uh, we're not going to do that tonight. I'm going to sum things up very quickly here, and just the, the four thoughts I want you to think about. And, uh, and whenever you leave here tonight, why, perhaps we'll have a better understanding of why we are in such desperate need of having love in our heart. We'll get the connection at the end, the last point. But for now, remember, we're talking about arrogance. We're talking about the feeling of superiority. We're talking about pride. Well, the first thing we need to remember is that pride is condemned by God. Over in Proverbs 8 and verse number 13, it tells us that God hates pride. Now, God hates sin of any kind, but anytime you read where God hates something, uh, you know, uh, that's a pretty good indication you ought to avoid it at all costs. If He hates it, you ought not to love it. If He hates it, you ought not to embrace it. If He hates it, we ought to stay as far away from it as we can, and there's no question about it, God hates pride. James tells us in chapter 4 and verse 6, God resisteth the proud. Now, it's one thing for God to hate pride, but notice 
This is talking about the person now. God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Now you think about that. If we need anything in this world, we need grace. Don't you agree? I mean, boy, listen, we couldn't make it without grace. That is the one thing above everything that we have got to have because the grace of God is the one thing that is sufficient for every need that we have. And notice there, there, he says here that God resisteth the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So if I'm going to receive the grace of God, that which I need more than anything, then I've got to have an attitude of humility. I cannot, I must not entertain pride in my heart. God resisteth the proud. Grace is promised to the humble. You know, I've often said God is either your best friend or your worst enemy. And think about it. God resists the proud. And to think that frightens me to think about God setting himself against me. You know, it's one thing whenever you have a known enemy. It might be as a kid growing up, you know, there's a, there are those people that you, you know, they, they don't like you and you don't like them and you just know that if you meet on the street, there's liable to be a fight because you don't like each other. It's one thing to have a known enemy, but whenever it says that God resists you, and let me tell you, if God is resisting you, he is an irresistible force in the sense that you can't make any headway against him. You don't shove him around. Amen. And so when he sets himself against you, you are, you are going to lose that battle. And so if I'm entertaining pride in my heart, then God is against me instead of for me. So God condemns pride. Secondly, we need to understand that pride creates contention. And there's several verses related to this. Solomon said in Proverbs 13:10, "Only by pride cometh contention." Let that sink in. Only by pride cometh contention. That means pride is involved in all contention. Then in chapter 28 of Proverbs, verse 25, he said, "He that is of a proud heart." stirreth up strife. So there again, you see contention. There is strife. And that gets to the very heart of the problem that existed at Corinth. And uh, and it plagued that church and all of the strife that was going on. And uh, here in chapter number 4, and I don't have time to read all of the verses related to it, but in chapter number 4, he deals with it over and over again, where he says there in verse number 6 that I read a while ago, he said uh, that no one be puffed up. And, and then verse 18, and some are puffed up. Now, th- th- listen, this is why they're going to court against each other. They're suing each other. They're fussing and fighting. They're divided up into different groups. And because one has a particular spiritual gift, he supposes that he's better than someone else who doesn't have that particular gift. And so uh, it creates contention. And we think about our situation today, and we think about the hostility in homes. 
And, uh, you know, it might be nothing but perfect peace in yours, but believe me, in the average home out there, there is a lot of hostility. And then there is fighting in families. There are conflicts in churches, and and we see it, you know, boiling over even into the streets, the the. The, uh, the conflicts that we're seeing and the rioting and all of that. And, and it's pride that creates that kind of conflict one with the other. The pride that assumes that, you know, I know more than you do. I'm better than you are. I deserve more than, than what you deserve. And so consequently, uh, the pride creates the contention that ultimately destroys us. And that brings us to the third point. Pride not only is condemned by God, it not only creates contention, but it causes people to fall. Proverbs 16 and verse 18, Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. You'd be amazed at how many preachers have fallen out of the ministry as a result of pride in their heart. I'll never forget there was a preacher very well known in the fundamental Baptist circles many years ago. This guy started preaching when he was, I don't know, I'm, I'm thinking 13, 14, something like that. He was a boy preacher and whiz bang and become, you know, become really well known. And I mean, by the time that he was, I guess, in his early 20s, he was pastor in a rather large church, had made a, a name for himself and so forth. And, and after a while, his ego got the best of him, and I won't relate to you the whole story, but uh, needless to say, uh, all of a sudden he was out of the ministry and brought shame and reproach upon the ministry and wrecked a church, ruined his family and all of that. And it was because of the pride that was in his heart. Uh, we think about a lot of times church splits that take place and we wonder what in the world happened well uh, a lot of times it's because of the pride in the preacher's heart and he doesn't get his way about something and, and consequently you know I, I, he just hands in his resignation and leaves either that or he runs off as many people as he can there's there's a church not far from this area uh, right here and again, I'm not going to be specific, but I'm looking around because we've got members that know exactly who I'm talking about. But there is a one particular church that is so proud of their staunch stand about some issues that are not cardinal major doctrines of the Bible at all, but they are issues that are important to to this preacher so much so that he doesn't care who he runs off, who he hurts, or anything else. And it's just about gone now. And it, he doesn't seem to care at all because it's all about him and what he expects. That's what pride does. It will destroy a church, but it destroys people. Let's keep this now on a personal level. It will ruin you. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter number 10 for just a minute because here we find him using ancient Israel as an example to warn us. And uh, at the beginning here, he starts out in verse number 6. He says, and now these things were our 
examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as, as they also lusted, neither be idolaters as some of them were. Uh, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, and neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day uh, three and twenty thousand you know, we look at we look at these things and consider the sin that is mentioned here, but but hang on and, and we'll see what is at the root of the problem. Verse nine, neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now, all of these things happen unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. There's the warning right there. And there is the heart of the problem. It's that arrogant spirit that we're going to do, you know, what we're going to do. Well, we look at that list of sins and we think about fornication. We think about idolatry and all of those sins. And, we, you know, we automatically dismiss that from the realm of possibility concerning our lifestyle. We, we would never do anything like that naturally. That's too bad. It's too awful. It's too sinful. We wouldn't dream about doing that. But some way or another, we can have pride in our heart and we can just kind of harbor it. And in fact, sometimes we're just kind of proud that we're proud. We certainly don't treat it as though it is something that, that, is, that is dangerous. And it's why I think I said last week, the quickest way to fall is to think that you can't. Pride goes before destruction and the Holy Spirit before a fall. And the very minute that we think, you know, I can't fall, this couldn't happen to me. I, you know, I saw it happen to so-and-so, but th that would never happen to me. After all, I love God too much. I'd never dream of doing what, uh, what, what they did. And so whenever he's talking about Israel and you go back to that story and you think about how horrible it was, and uh, what could possibly be at the root of it? What what produced that arrogant attitude that caused Israel to do what they did? Well, it was pride. It affects us personally, and it affects us in a corporate sense as well. And you mark it down, if pride gets a grip on a church, uh, it, it's, it's all over. It will absolutely ruin a church. I'll never forget years ago, I was preaching a revival meeting in this area, and I won't go into more detail than that. And there was a situation that had come up, and, uh, and, and some of you is going to know what I'm talking about, and that's all right. But, but, but I, I think we need to get the warning from it. There was a situation that, that came up, and, uh, of course, I was an outsider, not involved in it at all. And so, you know, I just, without being nosy, just kind of like, what in the world is going on? Well, uh, the, the problem that was going on is that one church thought that it was the, it was the mother church and to be the overseer of all of the other churches and, I'm really struggling to not be too specific here, but but let me tell you, one church never has the right to try to control another church. We don't, we don't have that right. 
you know, if we, we we started the church down at Santa Fe, for example, and after that is organized into a church, we don't have any business telling them what they're supposed to be doing or anything. That's no longer our business. That you know, that is their church. This is our church, and uh, that's the way we operate. They don't have to consult with us. And so I'm just saying that if we get pride in our heart, and by the way, that's that's more common than you might realize because from my hometown, there was a church there that was, I mean, famous. It was famous all across the uh, the, the, the country. Uh, had uh, Every pastor was a famous pastor. And uh, in fact, it's where Bev, when she was a little girl, she went to Sunday school there and and uh, this church was huge. I'm talking about back in the day, uh, 50 years ago, they were running uh, 2,500 or 3,000 or uh, something like that. So it was a huge church. But there got to be that attitude there among the people, uh, you know, that if you went to that church, it was the church. You know, if anybody, uh, if anybody amounted to anything, that's just the church you went to. You wouldn't dream about going out there, you know, that little old church out there on the outskirts of town. And, and so after a while, you've got this division in the Christian community. And, and I'm here to tell you that is an awful thing because it goes far beyond one preacher not talking to another preacher. It starts involving the people. And after a while, it affects the entire community and whenever pride gets in a church well you know if you're going to try to have an effective ministry you might as well try to build a dam across the mississippi with toothpicks because you'll never you'll never ever be able to accomplish that as long as pride is in control now there's one other thing and maybe you thought about it at the very beginning and that has to do with this matter of love and how it relates and how it relates to pride. Pride comes from a lack of love. And absolutely nothing in the world is able to destroy the monster of pride other than love. And we saw and look at the characteristics of love, and that is real obvious because love doesn't push itself to the forefront. You know, love is willing to uh, work behind the scenes without any notoriety. It's willing to put the other person first. It's willing to to serve rather than to uh, rather than to have other people serving uh, uh, the the person. You know, it reaches out to try to help them. And so that that's what love does. But the point is, how does that relate? To pride. We all see the problem, right? The problem is what? Pride. And we see the solution. The solution is love. But how does it relate? Well, I don't know about you, but whenever I, whenever I think about what I am, not just what I used to be, when I think about what I am, I am absolutely amazed that God would ever love me. Like the song this morning talked about being still amazed by grace. That's the way it ought to be throughout our entire lifetime. Uh, 
knowing knowing that God loves us is an humbling experience in our life. And that's why I said the most influential verse in all of the Bible for me was Romans 5, 8. That, but it just knocked me off my feet the first time that I heard that and it really began to sink in. Back when I was lost and the preacher got him said that God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners. And that was the part that really got me because, you know, I might have been able to, uh, you know, to, to see how, well, God might love me if I, if I was really a good person and I attended church and I gave generously and did this and did that. Well, you know, maybe I would earn some of God's love, but I knew what I was. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I just couldn't understand. How could God possibly love me? Now, we love him. Why? Because he first loved us, right? We love him because he first loved us. And then we love others. Why? Because we love him. You see, at all times, it goes right back to the fact that, that when we discover the greatness of God's love, we are humbled by that because of the fact that we are conscious of our sinfulness. You say, you know, well, I've never really thought of myself that way. Then you need to get saved. Nobody ever gets saved until they realize they're lost. And you'll never realize that you are lost until you realize how sinful and vile and filthy and unworthy you are. Everybody has got to get to that place that there is an admission in their heart that I am a vile, filthy sinner, that I, you know, that I deserve hell. And whenever we get to that place and we realize that God loves us nevertheless and that overwhelms us to the extent that we are so impressed by His love that we begin to love Him and because we love Him now that we, we love other people. And now the Spirit of God is living in us and the Spirit of God enables us to do what the Word of God commands us to do. And what happens? We don't think more highly of ourselves than we ought to, right? And so consequently, we begin to love others even above ourselves. That's, that is the way that love is connected with this matter of pride. And, and make no mistake about it, if we have pride in our heart, notice he said, only by pride comes contention. I mean, it's the only way it can exist. There wouldn't be any contention were it not for pride. Pride's always present. And there, there's no solution for the problem of pride other than love. Absolutely none. And the one thing that most of us don't want to do is to admit that we are lacking in love. You see, becoming a Christian gives us the possibility to love other people. But it doesn't give us a guarantee that we will love them at least to the degree that we ought to love them. And that's why there's always room for love to grow. Because after all, Christ is our example, is he not? Because he is our example, because his love is so great that you can't measure it. It is so deep that you can't fathom the depths of His love. It is so high that you can't reach up and grasp it. I mean, it's just above and beyond anything that we can imagine. 
Amen? It's far greater than it. So that means then there's always that room for growth. And the change agent, the one that produces the growth, is the Holy Spirit. And that's why the very first thing he mentioned in Galatians 5.22 when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, he says is love. That's on the top of the list. And so if we're lacking in love toward one another, which will do away with the pride that creates the contention, the only solution for that is that we be filled, that is controlled by the Spirit of God And as we give him control of our lives, as we yield ourselves to him, all of a sudden he begins to produce in us those graces that were characteristic of the Lord Jesus Christ. May God help us to not be puffed up and to think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but to realize that we are absolutely, totally undeserving of the least of God's favor. Amen? Amen. And I'll tell you what, that, that, we, we start living on that level, we won't have to worry about church splits. We won't have to worry about our family breaking up, uh, uh, because whenever we love one another that way, and, uh, we look out, you know, for the other person above ourselves, uh, all of a sudden there's going to be harmony in the home, there's going to be unity in the church, There's going to be joy in the heart. Love, love is not puffed up. It's not arrogant. It's not proud. Well, Lord willing, next week we're going to move on to verse number five. Love doth not behave itself unseemly. And look at another picture of love. Let's all stand together. Father, We thank you tonight for the instruction that we receive from your word. We thank you, Lord, for the inspiration that we receive by way of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. And we thank you for the promises that you've given that enable us to have hope, even whenever we're so frustrated with ourselves because of our obvious failures. And there's so many times that we just feel like giving up. We conclude that we have tried and we have failed and that we'll just never be able to conquer the monster of pride or never be able to love others as we should. But Lord, the deeper that we look into your word and the more impressed we are by your promises, the greater our hope is that we can be more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to live day by day in the light of your promise and in dependence upon your Holy Spirit. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.